Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Happy to say that. Merry Christmas to you all. Hope you had a great morning. Hope you had a little time with your families before church. And it's a, the rare occasion, the rare should be the rare joy when Christmas morning falls on a Sunday. If you're wondering when the last time this happened was, 2005. If you're wondering when the next time this will happen, when Christmas falls on a Sunday, 2016. So we got some time. Leap year in there, you know, it changes things a bit. But I'm glad you all chose to be here this morning alongside those who, who care that this is Christ's birthday. To most people, this day is a day about the traditions of America. It really has nothing to do with Christ. And it's something we expect of the world, but it's, it's really sad when we see that out of Christians, when this day has nothing about their traditions. We are, in fact, one of only a, a handful of churches that are open this morning, so to speak, open for business. We're here, we're meeting. Many have canceled their services. Traditions are fine, but let's not ever forsake God or what God wants on account of our traditions. But speaking of tradition, we all have it. We all have traditions. It's unavoidable. You can't escape it. Even in the church, we have a lot of traditions surrounding Christmas. And much of it is derived from the songs we sing this time of year. One of the problems with tradition, though, is it can lead people to do things without really thinking about what they're doing or why they're doing it. They're just going through the motions. They're doing what they've always done. That's tradition. For instance, we, we sing all these classic Christian hymns this time of year, and they're great. I think we all love the, you know, the Christian Christmas hymns. They're good. But why do you sing them? Well, that's just what we always sing in December. I bet you, though, there's a good handful of words in these songs. You probably don't even know what they mean, but you still sing them. Do you sing them? Yes. Do you know what they mean? Well, not really. So why do you sing them if you don't know what they mean? Well, tradition. It's just what we do. We just, we just sing them. I want to give you some examples of these. If you're guilty as charged of singing and ignorance, hopefully we can fill you in this morning. It will no longer be the case. Start with Noel. We all know the song, The First Noel. The first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. And the chorus just simply says, Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the king of Israel. And no, by the way, I'm not going to sing these for you. You don't want me to sing these for you. Yeah. But what does Noel mean? Thanks, Rod. Yeah, thanks, pal. What does Noel mean? Angel and I were actually talking about this in the car a couple weeks ago because the song came on the radio and I actually realized, you know, I don't, I don't think I know what Noel means. I thought it meant like peace or I just I was drawing a blank. In reality, Noel is just another word for Christmas. It means Christmas. It comes from an old French word for Christmas, and then the ultimate Latin origin means day of birth. So ask Noel, how about Alleluia or Hallelujah? This word shows up in the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. In fact, it shows up in a lot of songs, even non-Christmas songs. We sing the words Alleluia all the time, actually. So it's probably a good idea for you to know what that one means. That's kind of a big one. What does Alleluia mean? This one I learned when I learned Hebrew in seminary. Hallelujah simply means, literally, praise Yahweh, or praise God. It comes from a combination of the Hebrew root halal, which means to praise, and it's an abbreviation of Yahweh for just Yah, so hallelujah, praise Yahweh. So next time you sing hallelujah, just know you're saying praise God, praise Yahweh, the name of God. That's what you're saying. That's what it means. That's good to know. How about one we sang this morning, hark. Do you know what hark means? 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hark is a verb. It means listen, hear. And so when the angels are saying hark, they mean, hey, listen up. Listen to what we have to say. We're, we're heralding something. We're proclaiming something. Listen up. Glory to the newborn king. That's what it means. Here's one we sang last week. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains. And the mountains in reply echo back their joyous strains. And then what comes next? Gloria in excelsis Deo. Now that was, that's just straight up Latin you're singing there. And I know you guys all know Latin, so you don't need an explanation for that one. You can probably piece it together though. Gloria in excelsis Deo literally means glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. It's a good one. These are good words, even though we may not know them or be too familiar with them. Good lyrics, fitting and appropriate. Hopefully you're a little bit more informed as to their meaning now. And there's one more word that I want you to, to key in on, though. That's the word Emmanuel. You know the chorus from the song, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Emmanuel is a word that more Christians are familiar with, though. They know the meaning. They, they know what this one means. Because if, if you read your Bible, the meaning actually shows up in Scripture. They give it to us. It's kind of cheating. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, what does it mean? God with us. So you know that one. Emmanuel, God with us in Hebrew. It's a fitting title for Christ. It's a Messiah. It's a precious title for him. And Jesus being God in human flesh, yeah, he is God with us. That's, that's an apt title. It's a fitting description. But there's more. In fact, there's a lot more behind this word, Emmanuel. Or you can even say this concept of Emmanuel. God with us. There's a lot more. What I want to do this morning is expose you to this word, to this concept, Emmanuel. I want to show you, you can say that the majesty and the magnitude of this title for Christ, Emmanuel. I want to give you a whole new layer of understanding to the meaning of this word. And I want you to see how rich with significance this is. In Christmas, it's about Emmanuel. Christianity, I mean, it's about Emmanuel. This it, is huge. The idea of God with us. That's a huge idea in Scripture. And I want you to see that. I want you to get that, what that means. What it really means this morning. I think that will change you, change your life. It will definitely change the way you worship and approach, hopefully, Christmas. That's what we're going to do this morning. Where should we begin if you notice, when I read Matthew 1.22, talking about the virgin birth, Matthew said this all took place to fulfill a prophecy, an ancient prophecy. So if we want to see really the, the magnitude of Emmanuel, we need to go back to that prophecy and see what's going on here. What's this all about? So let's do that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, and if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, that'd be page 463 if you need help with that one. 463, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, one of the great prophets, he's writing hundreds of years, roughly 700 plus years before Christ is born. Isaiah 7, we're going to start off just 
just with the context and look at verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 7, 1 through 2, they read, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. You can stop there. Now, unless you know your Old Testament really well, which I hope you do, you read it a bunch, you're probably thinking to yourself, who are all these people and what on earth is going on here? You're probably a little confused. I want to fill you in, set this up for you. First things first, remember this. Nation of Israel, at at a time it was split into two kingdoms. Remember that? There's a northern kingdom, there's ten tribes in the north, or the northern kingdom. And then there's a southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah, Benjamin, in the south, the southern kingdoms. And sometimes the north and the south were at peace, but then sometimes the north and the south were at war, like right here. Now for the northern kingdom, every single king they had after the split was wicked in God's eyes. All of them were wicked, not, not one exception. For the southern kingdom, they had 22 kings. Roughly a third were somewhat good, and the rest were also wicked. This was a wicked time in Israel's history. In Isaiah chapter 7, look at verse 1, who's king? King of Judah. So we're talking the southern kingdom. Who's king right here? It says Ahaz. Ahaz is king. If you don't know much about Ahaz, I'll just tell you this. He's probably the second worst king of the southern kingdom. Second worst. He's wicked, incredibly wicked. Second Kings 16.3, for example, says that he, very early on in his kingship, practiced child sacrifice. They would take children and offer them to the god of Molech on the statue. The statue's hands would be like face down. They'd put the children, the children would roll down the statue into the fire. And they would offer children child sacrifice like the pagans around them. Needless to say, this was a wicked, unbelieving king. Not a good role model for Israel, right? Ahaz. And during his time, Rezin, the king of Aram, that's Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, they're invading Ahaz's territory. They're trying to conquer Jerusalem, which is in the south. So it's a two-on-one. These two guys coming from the north, they're invading Judah to the south, and they were scared. Ahaz was scared. The people were scared. It says they were shaking as trees, shaking the wind. Today we would say, you know, they're shaking in their boots. They were scared. And because the people were scared, God intervenes. So what does God do? He sends Isaiah, the prophet, to go talk to Ahaz. Look at verse 3 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz. You and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the king, set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. That says the Lord God, it shall not stand, 
nor shall it come to pass. These two kings of the north wanted to take over the south. They wanted to install their own king as a puppet just so that there would be no threat anymore. What's God saying here? It's like, do not be, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of these two little smoldering embers. They're not going to conquer you. It's not going to happen. Then something really interesting happens after this. It's only happened for other than this one other time in recorded history as, as, much, as far as we know, at least in the Bible. God gives Ahaz a blank check. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Notice, this is a command. God is commanding Ahaz, ask for a sign from me, whatever you want. And what's he saying? He's saying, make it big. Make it huge. You know, like the parting of the Red Sea? Think bigger. He's like, as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven, as whatever you got, throw it out. I'm, I'm t- commanding you, ask for a sign. Normally, you wouldn't do this, but God is telling him. God is commanding him, ask for a sign. If this were you, by the way, what would you ask for? I mean, maybe like, I don't know, turn off the sun for 24 hours or, you know, turn the moon actually into cheese or something like that. Who knows? Ask for anything. God's saying, ask for a sign. What does Ahaz ask for? Verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He's so righteous, isn't he? No. This is a feigned righteousness. This is pretension. This is religiosity. God just commanded him to ask. And so this is really nothing other than disobedience. He is not obeying. He was not trusting God. He's not believing in him. He didn't want a sign. Even though God was speaking to him through the prophet Isaiah, his heart was cold in unbelief and stubborn rebellion. So how does God respond to this? Verse 13. God responds through Isaiah. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah, he's he's scolding Ahaz for his rebellion, for his unbelief. And he says to him, basically, you may not want a sign, but you're going to get a sign. God himself is going to give you a sign. Ahaz, at this point, he's probably scared again, more scared. He's like, oh, that's not good. I just angered God. Now he's going to force me to have a sign. This can't be good. He's maybe thinking like, okay, ten plagues of Egypt are going to come, or maybe he's going to give me leprosy. It can't be good. This can't be good. What is the sign that God is going to give? Keep reading in verse 14. He says, behold, this is the sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. You can stop there. This is the sign. Here's the thing, though. This doesn't seem that big. It doesn't really seem as high as heaven. There's no real wow factor in this sign. 
I know what you're thinking there. You're saying, Eric, I mean, God just said a virgin will be with child. That's a big deal, right? That seems like a pretty big sign. But not so fast. You see, in the Hebrew, there are two words translated virgin. One refers to a woman who has never had relations with a man, a, a true virgin. If that word was used here, then yes, this would be you know, predicting a virgin birth. This would be huge. That would be a miraculous sign. But God doesn't use that word here. He uses another word. And this word simply refers to a young maiden, a woman of marriageable age. That's what it means. So when Ahaz heard, put yourself in Ahaz's shoes. When Ahaz heard this sign, and he knew that word, he would have thought to himself, okay, so some young woman is going to have a kid. And before that kid gets very old, these two invading kings, they're going to be destroyed. That's it. That's the sign. That, okay, that's, that's nice, but it's not that miraculous. I mean, young women have babies every day. So what, what's the big deal here? It, it doesn't quite seem as high as heaven. I know that you're still thinking to yourself, but, but wait, you know, doesn't verse 14 refer to Jesus? And that's always the verse we, we see, we quote. Always being about Jesus. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's Jesus, right? Well, I mean, if you look in the context here, though, I mean, it, it seems like, especially verses 15 and 16, we talk about before this child gets old, this, these two kings will be destroyed. It seems like this child being referred to is going to be born during the reign of King Ahaz, especially because of verses 15 and 16. So what's going on here? That's the question. What is going on here? First off, let me just say, I know this probably isn't what you had in mind for your typical Christian or a Christmas morning message. You're probably kind of expecting a little light and fluffy message, and here we are getting into some pretty complicated Old Testament prophecy. But thank you for coming. Bear with me. You'll get this. Just hang on. In prophecy, there's something called near and far fulfillment. Near and far fulfillment. You don't want to be arbitrary with this, but if the context indicates prophecy can be taken as having a legitimate near fulfillment and a legitimate far fulfillment. And that's what we have going on here. First, was this prophecy fulfilled during King Ahaz's day? Yes, it was. Most would see this prophecy fulfilled in Isaiah's own son, and I would agree. Look at chapter 8. Fast forward to chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Isaiah, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeparechiah, or whatever that word is. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. First things first, what's up with that name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz? I think that's the longest name in the Old Testament. My old pastor used to joke whenever he talked about this. When he went to Starbucks, that's the name he would give them on the cup. Like, what's your what, what name for this? Uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And he just let them, you know, work that one out. That was pretty funny. What these verses are saying, though, is, and notice especially verse 4, it, it, it's repeating the, the sense of chapter 7, verse 15. It's making the same promise that before this child, now it's talking about Isaiah's child, before he's very old, 
These two kings, they're going to be destroyed. It's the same thing. And what about Emmanuel? What's the whole Emmanuel thing? Well, actually, if you study carefully, Emmanuel is, is uh, referenced in chapter 8, verse 8. The word Emmanuel is right there. And in chapter 8, verse 10. And many would apply this to Isaiah's son as well. And then finally, look at chapter 8, verse 18. It's Isaiah just talking to himself now, and he says, chapter 8, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, that includes Maher, Shalom, Hashbaz, are for what? Are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah himself confirms, God has given me two children. The first children was a son, or the first son was a sign as well. We didn't study that. But these two sons, God has given them as what? As signs for Israel. Just like Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a child will be born. That's the sign. So anyway, in short, a strong case can be made that there is a near fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's own son, as expected. This prophecy was made and, and says, hey, before this kid is old, these two kings are going to be taken down. And guess what? It happened. Isaiah did have the son. And guess what? If you read in the book of Kings, it happened. Assyria came less than two years later and destroyed those two northern kingdoms and took them captive just two years later. Less than two years later. So God was faithful to his word. This prophecy came to pass. And that was that. But there is more going on here. There is more. Even in the context, actually, there are hints that there's something greater going on here. First things first, check this out. Go back to chapter 7, verse 13. We read this, chapter 7, verse 13. Remember, God is scolding the king through Isaiah, and he says this. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Stop there. Who is God, through Isaiah, talking to in these verses? Who is it? You're probably thinking Ahaz. If you say Ahaz, you're only partly correct. You see, God, in this verse, he changes the object of who he's talking to here. Now, verse 13, he's talking to, not Ahaz, but the house of David, which represents the Davidic lineage. And since the king represents the people, God is now talking to the people as a whole. You may be thinking, now you're just kind of making that one up. Well, no, verse 13 switches to the plural. Before, God was just talking singular, you, Ahaz, you, singular. But verse 13, look there again. In Hebrew, the word for you, they're all in the plural now. Verse 13, God says, Is it too slight a thing for you, plural, to try the patience of men, that you, plural, will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, a sign. God's not just talking to Ahaz anymore. There is something more going on here. And you see, the nation as a whole, they were just as stubborn and rebellious as their king. So God is now directing this sign to the whole nation. This is now for the house of David and the nation, to all of them. There's one more hint in the context that something bigger is going on here. Look at chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 7, 8, 9, they go together. They're like a little unit. In chapter 9, we have another famous verse. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Clearly, this child in chapter 9, I mean, look what he's called. Mighty God, eternal father. That's not an ordinary kid. This is clearly the long-awaited Messiah, and they knew this. And so even from this context, the Jews, they could have been able to piece together that there is something bigger going on in these chapters. Who is this child that will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us? Remember, God with us. I mean, could he be the same child of Isaiah 9, who's called Mighty God? But how, how could that be? How could God be a child? That, that doesn't make sense. Let's throw that one out. They didn't get it. They never piece it together. But there's already hints in this chapter that there's more going on. Well, anyway, these words, they lay dormant for 700 years plus. And the promise of Christmas was 700 years in the making. Now, we've spent our time in the Old Testament. Let's, let's move on now to the New Testament. Turn now to Luke chapter 1 first. Luke chapter 1. Long after these words in Isaiah were spoken and even forgotten by many, they come back into the spotlight. So before we get to Matthew chapter 1, first now Luke chapter 1, verse 26 you know the story. It's a Christmas story. Luke 1.26, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man who was named, whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Note here really quick, in the Greek here, the word for virgin is actually the, the true word for virgin, a woman who has never had relations with a man. Verse 28, and coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is, notice these descriptions for the Messiah here. Right? This is huge. Notice the magnificence of this child. What's he called? He will be great. He will be son of the Most High. I mean, seriously, son of the Most High? That's a huge title. God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going he's gonna to reign forever. How's that even possible? Mary knew this was the Messiah. There, there's just no other explanation here. Just one problem. What's the problem? Verse 34. Mary said, said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. 
So in other words, this child's father is going to be God, God himself. This is the incarnation. And being born in this way, Jesus was kept free from inherent sin. That's Luke chapter 1. Now, keep that in mind, now turn to Matthew chapter 1. Turn back, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1, which is where we started. Matthew chapter 1. Don read this for us in our scripture reading this morning. Let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 18. And the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Everything we just read in Luke. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Mary, Joseph, they're engaged at this point. You can just picture this scene. And Joseph comes home from work one day to see his bride-to-be. And she says, sit down. I've got news for you. I'm pregnant. Joseph says, are you kidding me? Who's the guy? Who's the man? How could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? And she says, "What? Well, it's not what you think. I'm still a virgin. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph's like, yeah, you and me both. Yeah, right. He didn't buy it. He didn't buy into this at all. And he was planning to send her away. He's still an honorable man, so he didn't want to disgrace her. But he didn't buy this. He was going to send her away secretly before they got married. In Luke, what we just read in Luke, the angel came and the angel confronted Mary to convince Mary, hey, this is what's happened. I'm just here to fill you in. Now in Matthew, the angel has to come and fill in Joseph so that he doesn't abandon Mary. Look at verse 20 now. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means, by the way. Same as Joshua in the Hebrew, that's the same word actually. It means Yahweh is salvation. That's what the word means. Yahweh is salvation. This child would come not to deliver God's people from their physical enemies, but from their spiritual enemy, namely sin. Let's finish off this section. Verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here we go. Matthew here tells us, without a doubt, that Isaiah's prophecy, which we just read, in one way or another, it applies to Christ. Right? It's just right there. The amazing thing is, though, is that God in his wisdom, when he gave those words of Isaiah 7.14, he chose such careful language that it actually can perfectly legitimately apply to both the near time and to this far time as well. 
Indeed, in Isaiah's own day, these words came to pass, as we saw. But God intended another significance to these words, hinted at by what we read in Isaiah 9 and elsewhere. And here we find that Christ, he is indeed another sign for Israel, a sign for her salvation. And guess what? This sign, it is as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. This is a big sign. Look, this one's big. Do you know do you know what's so big about this? What, what's the remarkable part of this sign? Now, what do you think it is? What do you think is so miraculous about this? Probably thinking to yourself, well, the virgin birth. I mean, come on. If you think the virgin birth, you'd be wrong. Don't get me wrong. The virgin birth, it is miraculous. This was a miracle. This was supernatural. This was divine intervention. It doesn't happen every day. Last time I checked, this was, this was huge. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. The virgin birth is not the most amazing thing about this sign. What is? It's Emmanuel. Emmanuel. It's who this child is. Who is he? He is God with us. He's God with us. That's the amazing part. If God wanted, he could have made you virgin born. But Christ, in addition to that, he was God in human flesh. This is God come down. This is the incarnation where God, without shedding his deity, took on a human nature and human flesh and added to himself everything that was human. This is God finding a way to be with his people. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Like I said at the beginning, this is part of the the majesty and the magnitude of, of Emmanuel. It's big. Are you starting to get it? Are you starting to understand this this even concept of of Emmanuel, God with us? 700 years in the making. We're not quite done, though. There's one more question I want to ask about this to help you really drive home the the concept of Emmanuel. Why? Why Emmanuel? Why God with us? Why would God do this? Why would God take on humanity like this? Why would, he, why would he come down? Why would he be born like this? He didn't have to. Why Emmanuel? I'll try to make this one quick. Stay with me here. Follow along. Turn to Genesis 1. I want to look at a few passages. I'm sure you know where this is. It's the first chapter in the book you're holding. Genesis chapter 1. You all know this chapter well. It's creation. God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. And what was the pinnacle of God's creation? It was man, mankind, man and woman. And after God created man, creation was finished. And what does he say? Genesis 1, look at verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Creation was perfect, free from sin, free from blemish. It was full of joy and purpose. And as Genesis 2 goes on to tell us, God took his new creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he put them in this garden, Garden of Eden, to cultivate it. 
This was their paradise. It was a good place. Now, before the fall, before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, how long were they there in the garden? We don't know. doesn't say. doesn't seem like a very long time, but also wasn't no time. There was some period before the fall where they were in the garden with God, free from sin, which is fun to think about. During that time in the garden, before the fall, after creation, where was God? Where was God? Was he off doing something else and he just created them? Then he went off to you know, go create another universe somewhere or go do something else. Well, what was he doing? Where was he? We'll turn chapter 3, just page over. We get one glimpse of where God was during this time. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I know this is in the context of the fall, but what does this tell you? Where was God during this time? He was with them. He was with them. Somehow God took on a human appearance and he walked in the garden with his people. The point is he was with them. They got to enjoy his glory. They got to bask in his his presence. It's Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is God with his people. God created us, mankind, to be with him like this. This is what we were created for, to be with God. Emmanuel. What happens next? You know the story. Adam and Eve sin. They disobeyed their creator. And sin is an ultimate offense to God, being perfectly holy and good. God must hate sin. And he must judge sin. He has to. It's part of his righteousness to do so. It's a good thing. So what happened to Adam and Eve? Well, verse 23, they were removed from the garden. But worse yet, they were removed from God. They were removed from God's presence. Emmanuel was broken. God was not with them as he intended to be in creation. And it was all because of their sin. Fast forward through history a little bit. And in time, God selects a nation, Israel, to be his people. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he will be with them, Emmanuel. God even dwelled in their midst at times through the pillar of fire and cloud. But even though God chose a people like this, things weren't quite right. Things weren't right. People were, they were kept away from God. They worshipped at a distance. God still wasn't with them as he was in the garden. It wasn't the same. Why not? Because they still had their sin. They still had their sin. You see, sin creates a barrier between you and God. And fellowship cannot cross that barrier. God must remove sin and sinners from his presence forever. The wages of sin is death. And those who die in their sins, they are eternally separated from God's fellowship forever in hell. It's a stark reality of of the consequences of your sin. And guess what? You, me, both, we're sinners. We have that barrier problem. But God wasn't finished with his creation. He he wasn't just going to simply abandon them in their sin. Because God still wanted to be with them. He did. He couldn't, though, because of their sin, so he had to do something about that. 
God devised a way in which he could pay for the sins of the people and save them from their sins. How could he do this? How could he achieve such a thing? Is that even possible? It is possible through Emmanuel. God came down. He humbled himself by becoming a man, a child even, an infant. Humanity and divinity joined together in one person, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity. Fully God and fully man, this child grew into a man. And then this man died. How did he die? Well, he was crucified. He was nailed to a cross. Why did he die? He died for you, that you might go free. For on that cross, the full weight of sin and the wrath of God directed toward that sin were placed on him. And he paid the penalty that you deserved on the cross. He paid it. And for for a time, Jesus was forsaken by God himself. Remember, he cried out the cry of the damned when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, for that time on the cross, God was not with his son so that in a future time, he could be with you. Jesus died so that you could know Emmanuel, which is God with us. But by the power of God, Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose from the dead on the third day, showing his power over death, and now he lives. He's no longer the baby in the manger. Do not think of him like that. He's not even any longer the man on the cross. Rather, he is now the risen and exalted Lord. And after Jesus rose from the dead, remember what he did? He visited with his disciples for 40 days. But after that, he left them. He left them. How could he do this? How could Jesus leave his precious disciples after he had rose from the dead? I mean, he's a Messiah. He's Emmanuel, God with us. How could he just leave? Remember what he said as he left his disciples? Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, read. He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What was his last words? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he wasn't really going anywhere. In Christ, though ascended, God is still with us. What's really interesting is that the book of Matthew, it begins with the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And guess what? Its very last words are the fulfillment, the realization, Christ, God with us. Not quite done. Story is almost over. One last, one last verse, one last passage. Turn to Revelation 22. I know you know where this one is as well. It's the last chapter in the book you're holding. Revelation chapter 22. In the future day, when all things are made new, guess what? Emmanuel. God will be with us. 
He will be with his people once again. Curse will be lifted, and then in a way far better than in the Garden of Eden, God will once again dwell with his people. That's Emmanuel. This is the hope of Emmanuel. Two passages here. Look at Revelation 22, verses 3 through 4. This is the new heavens, the new earth. It says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Now turn real quick back to chapter 21. Let's look at verse 1. Chapter 21, you're right there, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, get this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be where? Among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Does this sound like worship at a distance? This is Emmanuel, God with his people. Do you get it now? Do you get the picture of Emmanuel, the concept, the significance behind it? And guess what? Christmas, it's about Emmanuel. Not trees or stockings or presents or songs or whatever. It's about Emmanuel. I hope you get it. I hope you get the promise of Emmanuel. I hope you get the hope of Emmanuel. There's a hope here of God with us once again. It's what we were made for. So do you want this? And let me ask, do you have this? Do you have Emmanuel? Are you going to be there in the end that this is describing? Are you going to be one of those people? Who's going to be there? Let's look at verse 7 of Revelation 21. God says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's those who overcome. If you are here this morning, and you don't have that personal, real, saving faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, let today be that day. I'm talking a a real, meaningful, trust relationship with Christ that shows itself in daily living. Where coming to church on Sunday is not the burden for you. Reading the Bible is not something you check off the list. You've been changed. You've been born again, and anybody can tell. It's pretty obvious. If that's not happened to you, you need Christ. You still need to turn from your sins and turn to Emmanuel. So examine yourself this morning. Do you have this? And if you don't, let this be your best Christmas present ever and receive the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. Genuinely. For those here who do know this Jesus, take this home. Take home the hope of Emmanuel and the joy of Emmanuel. It should put a smile on your face to remember God with us and to look forward to that day when God will be even closer with us. Maybe you come here, you've got burdens, you've got troubles, conflict. Let them melt away in light of the joy of Emmanuel. Let that overcome 
whatever you've got going on in your life. Let this day be about Him and rejoice and worship. For through Christ, God is with His people once again. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Father God, we pray for this morning, we we praise you for this morning, for the, the time we get to remember Christ, Emmanuel, our Savior, our King who has come. Lord, we thank you for this gift. Christmas today in our world is about presents. Well, they're right in a sense. It is about a gift. It's a gift that you gave to us 2,000 years ago in the form of your Son. You didn't have to, Lord, but you did. You came down. You humbled yourself in Christ, the second member of the Trinity, taking on flesh. The humility to just be born. And then the humility to die on the cross for us, to, to take our sins away. It's, it's heavy, it's serious stuff, but it's true, and we need to hear that often, Lord. Pray for all in here that they would know you. I pray for any who doesn't know you, who knows that his or her faith is it's, it's a phony, it's a sham, it's not real. Convict them, change them. Expose them to the power of the gospel that they would see it no longer be the same, and they would have the joy that, that the rest of us have. May all of us, Lord, enjoy this Christmas, time with our families, Help us to remain focused on Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.